Welcome to Talk Nation Radio and the second part of our special with Ellen Hodgson Brown, an attorney and former civil litigator who used her research and writing skills to become an investigative journalist. She has written about a wide variety of subjects, including the pharmaceutical industry and the health industry. Her very popular book on the economy is titled Web of Debt, the shocking truth about our money system and how we can break free. When the trustees go in to foreclose on this property, they don't have the paperwork. They don't have a piece of paper that has their name on it and the borrower's name on it. And so, by law, they can't foreclose. And many courts are now acknowledging that and throwing these cases out. Ellen Hodgson Brown's website is webofdebt.com. In the first part of this program, we learned that most U.S. states are virtually bankrupt. Yet the state of North Dakota is solvent. Nonpartisan state planners set up a state bank. And because the bank is owned by the state, the state has control over how it sets its policies. If you eliminated interest from the cost of state projects, you would reduce the cost on average in half. Those states' founding state banks could save on interest, and the much larger private banks are already accepting of the idea. They're already working with North Dakota's state bank and liking it. They can make these 1% loans to farmers. In theory, what it could make 0% loans to itself to do state projects like roads and bridges or self-sustaining projects like low-cost housing that would pay rent and that would then go back and pay off the loan. So you would have 0% financing, let's say, to build low-cost housing. And then the rents would come back and pay off the loan. So it's not inflationary. You pay the loan off, but you don't have to pay more than the thing costs. So the people of California start this bank, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the governor of California, the legislature. Who does this uh, founding of a bank? I gave a PowerPoint on this in Tucson, and a man there, Bob Ellis, introduced me, and he had worked on Wall Street and got excited about it. And he said he had set up banks before, and he said you could do it in like three months. You could have have a bank set up. So he actually wrote a proposal to Governor Schwarzenegger, which he didn't get a response on. But but the thing is, it, it would be easy to do. It's totally legal. I mean, you don't have to change any laws. You just have to realize that you have that option. There are other ways that the whole banking system should be redone. But that, setting up a state bank is the simplest because it just means setting up a bank. And since North Dakota has already done it, you can't say it's not constitutional. I mean, they've been doing it for close to 100 years. Some states have laws limiting what they can do. With, For instance, in Michigan, a single bank can only have, I mean, if, if the state puts its revenues in a bank, they have to be matched dollar per dollar with private revenues. In other words, they can only have a 50% state-funded bank. But they could always change that law. I mean, that's just a state law. It's not constitutional or anything. Now, you're talking about politicians who, in many cases, have certain loyalties. I know some politicians, for example, held fundraising events in the state of Connecticut, courtesy the hedge fund um, owners or mm-hmm. the hedge fund CEOs that live here. So in the event that the legislature and the governor and the people of a given state like Connecticut wanted to found a new state bank a la North Dakota, maybe they'd have to do it in closed session. And I don't mean closed to the public. I mean closed to hedge fund bankers, maybe major insurance companies, uh, AIG, who knows? But I mean, how do you keep the larger global 
banking industry out of these state bank projects, can you? Well, I would think in California we have the initiative process, which is also a populist thing that was done in the early 20th century. So if we, the taxpayers, got together, you need 8% of the people who voted in the last election, that many signatures, to get it on the ballot. And then, then they have to bring that bill and put it to a vote. And if the people vote on it, then it's the law, despite what the legislators think. But not every state has that. But it seems to me the key would be to persuade the banks, et cetera, that this is in their interest. I mean, you cannot, a bank itself needs some customers, and it's not going to have any customers if the states go bankrupt. You want a state that's thriving. You want businesses to boom. And if if the banks themselves are frozen out of issuing loans, why not let a state bank free up credit. Um, The Federal Reserve is doing that right now, and nobody's saying that they're competing with the other banks. They're helping the other banks. The Federal Reserve yesterday, uh, Ben Bernanke said he was going to add $1.2 trillion in loans. Where is he getting the money? He's just going to create it on the books, like banks always do. He's going to create it on the Fed's books. And $300 billion of it is going to fund U.S. government debt, which I think is great. That's what they should be doing. The reason is When the Federal Reserve buys government debt, they rebate the interest to the government, which is great. I mean, we we get it like almost interest-free. So it's the same as the government printing its own money because federal debt is never paid off. It's just rolled over from year to year. It hasn't been paid off since 1838. So loans that are rolled over from year to year and that are at 0% interest are the same as issuing money. So so if a state bank did the same thing, it's not going to hurt the other the banks and the rest of the state, they are businesses in that state like every other business, and they want the state to have the economy. They want business. They want thriving customers. What if, let's say, three major banks in a given state decide, well, we're going to do our banking exclusively with the state of Connecticut's own bank, and then they pull out of the other banking system and everything kind of collapses into the state level as opposed to the you know international one, right? Is that a concern? I mean, what are the concerns? Well, in North Dakota, the Bank of North Dakota operates like the Federal Reserve. It, it operates like a banker's bank. So it has all these partnerships with the private banks. So the private banks like it. The Bank of North Dakota is their bank's backstop where they can they can go for resources, and it's got plenty of money. The bankers themselves, they don't want to be in the hot seat and having people picking over their books and seeing what they've been up to all these years. They would rather have things move along, I would think. Now, what about getting back to the Federal Reserve? You've said Congress has no authority over the Federal Reserve. What do you suggest changing about the whole system of what the Federal Reserve is and who does have control over it? What what should we do with it? How should we deal with it? Should we put it out of business? What What's the answer? Well, Congress could. That In the Charter, the Federal Reserve Act says that the, the last provision of the Act says that this Act can be amended, altered, or rescinded at any, any time. So Congress could go in and say, all right, we're buying back your stock or whatever was a fair thing, and we're nationalizing the Federal Reserve, and then that would fix the system. But, of course, that would be controversial because it's, it's just, that's just the type of thing that it's hard for everybody to understand even how it works. So that's not the most direct way to get there. But that's what they should do. Ideally, it should be a nationalized federal reserve. The Federal Reserve should be federal. And I think the whole banking system would operate better if it was 
a public banking system, just like a public library. I mean, you, you're going back to the source here. You don't need to worry about reserves if you are the government because all the dollar is backed by is the full faith and credit of the United States. In other words, it's just this big umbrella organization that says, we trust you to pay back your loan, and therefore we're going to extend you credit. So that would work, I think, to have a completely public system, but then that's going to be controversial, too, because the private banks are going to... In India, they have public banks and private banks operating right alongside, and they get along fine, and it used to be that the private banks made fun of the public banks because they weren't aggressive enough. You know, they weren't out there speculating in derivatives and all that, um, and they were just trying to please their customers. But now... Everybody's rushing into the public banks because they're the only safe banks, and the private banks have gotten in trouble with the derivatives. So you could allow both systems to just go along on their own. I think the natural evolution will be that the bankers themselves, I think, would be relieved to actually be in a public system because that's the only safe system. They're not going to get in trouble like they have now. For listeners who are wondering where to do their banking in the meantime, you know, let's say until they're able to advocate for a state bank in Connecticut. I know there are, for example, credit unions, you know, small credit unions. There's one in Wyndham, Connecticut, Northeast Family Federal Credit Union. And I've seen descriptions of this little federal credit union at the local food co-op. So there's kind of a small group of people collectively, you know, operating a credit union. Would that be a, a way for us to go temporarily or would that be bad for our quote-unquote economy? Because if you go back to like post 9-11, we were all being told we had to sort of chip in and save the economy by spending money. Well, I think community banks are great. I mean, they're, they're much less likely to have been involved in this derivatives thing, so they're probably a lot sounder. I mean, they are having problems like everybody else now because the whole um, they're having problems borrowing to meet their reserve requirement, et cetera. You know, it used to be that banks didn't worry about the reserves. They had to account every two weeks, I guess, so they'd look, look at their books and see if they had the 10% they were supposed to have. And if they didn't have it, they could just go to the money market fund and borrow overnight, or they could borrow from the Fed if they had to. But now they're having trouble with the money markets are frozen, and so they can't borrow from the other banks. So they're all struggling because they're all in the same system. But the community banks are certainly worth supporting the problem with a credit union, I'm not sure if it's a credit union in the old sense or a savings loan in the old sense was like Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life. And that system doesn't work mathematically because if you don't use the fractional reserve system, in other words, if you only lend the money you have, then you're going to have two people wanting the same money at the same time. If Mr. Smith came for his money and Jimmy Stewart had to say, I'm sorry, but uh, Mr. Jones has it for 30 years, you know, on his mortgage or whatever. There's not enough money to lend out the depositor's money and for the depositor still to be able to get it when they want it. Actually, the credit system, you need a credit system. So a, a community bank, I think, would actually have trouble setting that up in a safe way. It's, they're much better off to have the, the full faith and credit of the United States behind them. Ellen Brown, I'd like to turn to some of your recent articles where you write, for example, let the lawsuits begin. This again on webofdebt.com. <laughs> let me ask you, I mean, literally, let the lawsuits begin? We're going to sue the banks in a tsunami of private litigation? Well, we do need 
need clout. We need some sort of leverage. It doesn't do to just take to the streets and wave signs and so forth. They don't listen. So you need some sort of real financial political clout. I would envision a lobby, a lobby of consumers and homeowners and so forth. One legal remedy or legal leverage that we have is that most of these subprime borrowers have a good defense to foreclosure in that as a matter of law, in order to foreclose, you have to have a piece of paper that has your name on it and the defendant's name on it. And because all those subprime loans, the banks did not want them, they moved them immediately off their books by selling them to investors. These are pools of investors in securities. Well, the pools of investors, then they would resell, you know, just like stock. That's what a security is. It's like stock, and it's very liquid, and it turns over. So there's the paper trail has been lost. So when the trustees go in to foreclose on this property, they don't have the paperwork. They don't have a piece of paper that has their name on it and the borrower's name on it. And so by law, they can't foreclose. And many courts are now acknowledging that and throwing these cases out. The reason most cases go through is that the trustees file what's called a lost note affidavit saying they just don't have the paperwork, and the judge lets that through unless somebody objects. So that's why we would need some sort of lobby or coalition where we'd educate people to their own rights, the rights that they have in court. So that's one thing. If you A million homeowners who were prepared to bring this defense would be somewhat daunting, I would think. I mean, at least if you had a lobby and you could say to your your legislators, we're aware that we have these defenses. We know there are lawsuits we could bring, but first we would like to work it out. <laughs> you know, if we can negotiate something, we'd rather do it that way. Anyway, I think we need some sort of clout and that our legal remedies are one way to do it. If the trustees then can't foreclose, that means that the securities holders are out of luck. But then the securities holders have a lawsuit. I mean, many lawsuits. And and some of these securities holders are bringing lawsuits that they were misled. They were told these were AAA securities, for instance, and they weren't because they had all this dodgy stuff in it. So it, basically it would go back to that the ultimate liability is with the banks that wrote those what are called financial products, although there was not really any product to it. They were just these whole derivatives deals. So the ultimate liability would actually go back to all those people who are right now in power. I think that's one reason that they're, they're scrambling so hard to keep any bank from going bankrupt, any big bank, because if you go bankrupt, then you have to open your books and everybody gets to see them. That's what happened to the savings and loan in the 80s. They actually were put through bankruptcy, which is what should happen today. And and then it was obvious that some people had been engaging in fraud here, and there were people who actually went to jail. And I think that's maybe what the, the big bankers are worried about now, that they, too, have some potential serious liability here. Well, the taxpayer needn't concern themselves too much. I mean, when you stop and think about where Madoff is right now, he's in a very small little jail cell. It must not cost very much to keep him there. (laughs) Now, you have a little um, section on your blog, webofdebt.com, Coalition for Justice in Banking. What is that? I was just proposing that we need a group, but in the blog, it's just People write in with questions, and we're trying to figure out how to organize. There are many groups that are trying to do something, and you can just feel the rumblings of a populist movement out there, but they really don't know what to do. We need to form a plan so that we can all get behind some particular 
action plan. I mean, even just among the money reformers, we don't agree on how we think the problem should be solved. So the first thing we have to do is get together and figure out what we want. And then I think there there are a lot of people that are eager to join something. But I just picture these little waves of grass, and what you need to do is get the wind all going in the same direction, and then you have a movement. We're sort of a nation that just elected a president on the wings of a hope, you know, a vision of uh-huh. change, you know. So let's get a concept going here. If we started tomorrow with some of your ideas and some others that, you know, you're working with and talking with on this whole concept of fixing America's economy, how long would it take us? I mean, give us just a sense of how you would picture the length of time that might be involved. Are we talking about a century? Are we talking about 10 years, you know, five years? How could we picture this? I think it, you know how fast this whole thing fell apart. I think you could fix it very quickly because it didn't fall apart because we ran out of resources or we ran out of workers. We've got everything we had before. I mean, business appeared to be booming a few years ago. The only thing that's happened is our credit system is messed up. So if you fix the credit system, you could have everything humming again. So what I would envision is if just one state did a state bank, North Dakota did it 80 years ago, and and you can't exactly prove that that was what turned that state around. But if if a news like Michigan is talking about it, I mean, I know there are people that are conferencing about doing a, a state bank. So let's say they did it. They're obviously one of the most bankrupt states in the country, and they have one of the highest unemployment rates, if not the highest. So let's say they did it, and then all of a sudden they had all this credit and they just got everything moving again. I think it would just, everybody else would do it. It would just be obvious that that was the problem and that was the solution. And let's talk finally about Wall Street. A lot of people don't even understand how Wall Street investments work. I know some of us just watched John Stewart beat up on this money guy. Kramer. <laughs> yeah, and Kramer got sort of slammed. And, and I think there's no doubt that he was saying one thing to one group of people in his life and another thing to another group of people, specifically about short selling. And we didn't talk about what that is, but you, you sort of brought it up a little bit when you talked about how even historically, a long time ago, people could make something fail intentionally in order to profit from the end result. Not exactly a hostile takeover, but sort of like a hostile takeover. But I mean, same principle. You want to profit Mm -hmm. from failure, right? Right, right. Okay. So on Wall Street, I've heard it said that Wall Street is operating in a way in sync with oil pricing. I've heard, you know, Wall Street has been sort of taken over by this group of new people involved in hedge funds as opposed to these long-term debts, and that's what ruined things. I mean, you hear all sorts of explanations. Can you give me a sort of a synopsis of what is wrong with Wall Street? What should people literally do with their investments right now? Well, that's a good question. I actually like the fact that I think Ben Bernanke might actually turn it around. Because, as I say, when the Federal Reserve buys U.S. debt, it rebates the interest. So that is what I think should happen, is that the government should have the power to issue money. Well, selling your debt and getting dollars for it that don't cost you anything because the loans are rolled over indefinitely and you don't pay interest on them is the same as having the power to issue money, which is where I think it should be with Congress. So let's say Obama has this $800 billion, $900 billion 
however you look at it, um, stimulus package, the Federal Reserve, I mean, they've already said they're going to put up $300 billion for long-term government debt, which is unusual. They don't usually buy long-term government debt. So let's say they put up $900 billion, fund the whole stimulus package with loans that are rolled over indefinitely and interest-free, and in effect, creating the money to fund the stimulus package, which is just like the colonists did, that where they would print the money, then you use it, you spend that on the workers to build the roads and the bridges, that then some of that is profit-generating and it comes back. And there's some problems with the stimulus package. I understand there's only about 10% of it is actually for roads and bridges and those productive things. But anyway, I'm always torn between being a bull and a bear, but I'm starting to feel a little actually possibly bullish myself, although, of course, I'm totally into gold and silver and all those contrarian-type investments. I mean, I think you can't really go wrong with gold, if only because of the perception that the dollar is going to hyperinflate. And certainly, like the Chinese, I mean, a lot of central banks, they all hold gold. If nothing else, when everything else falls apart, you've got something that is shiny and solid and looks valuable. You know, it's something material. But I think, <laughs> I don't know, I think it might be time to start actually having optimism about the market. Well, you heard it from Ellen Brown, and she certainly has become well-known. Her book and her blog have really taken off. Ellen Brown has started out as an attorney practicing civil litigation in L.A., but her new book, Web of Debt, is about the Federal Reserve and the money trust, you know, America's economic system. And in the past, you've you've done other research in other areas, uh, the pharmaceutical cartel that gets its power, too, from the money trust. Were you always interested in research, Ellen? Uh, yes. <clears throat> well, I always wanted to be a writer, really. I'm a writer first. <laughs> in, in my youth, my first degree was in English literature, and I I like a nice turn of phrase. So, so actually, Web of Debt is, the whole theme of it is the Wizard of Oz, and I I love this little quote, you know, I have those all, all the way through, and I, I've written it like a novel. I've used that whole theme and projected it over the last 300 years and shown. The Wizard of Oz was actually written as a monetary allegory in the 1890s, and the reason those symbols resonate with us and have for so long is that we all have this sense that there's a wizard behind the curtain, a little man pulling levers who, like Alan Greenspan has been compared to the Wizard of Oz, a little, little man who's pulling levers and pretending to have great powers. So, yeah, that was my first bent was to write, but research and writing, yeah. So all we need is courage and a little heart and maybe another Yip Harburg. Oh, right. I could oh, that picture... Was the, that was the song, uh, yeah. Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Right. I, I could just picture him writing a song to go along with some of your pieces. It would be very interesting to hear what that would be like. But <laughs> certainly, I mean, this is a popular phenomenon, a popular movement, if you will, and people are just revisiting our history. But that's not to say that someone won't come up with a way of doing things that's entirely, completely new, right? Well, we never did what the American colonists fought the revolution for, which was to have their own money. According to Benjamin Franklin, the King George said they couldn't print their own money anymore, and we had this huge depression. It was like if the president said, well, you can't use your dollars anymore, go find some gold. Well, they didn't have any gold, so they had to borrow it from the British bankers, and, so, and they had to pay their taxes in gold to England. So, of course, we revolted. We didn't. We didn't have any money. We were going bankrupt, and so the people just kept printing their dollars anyway, and that meant war. 
but we didn't get the system we fought for. We wound up with their system anyway. So it's not like we have to create something new. What we have to do is do the thing that the potential has been there all along. We just haven't done it yet. Well, we sort of have to get back to the root of the matter. Yeah. Uh, I guess we're at that point, too. It's kind of dangerous to think about this, but I know that the Bush family is not, you know, they're just newly out of the White House, but not necessarily out of power, not just the Bush family, but also former Vice President Dick Cheney and a bunch of other folks who have been recently extremely powerful. And Jeb Bush, as I recall, was sent down to Latin America as sort of this new ethanol czar. And I think we do run the risk that as oil starts to be challenged by these new forms of energy, you know, we're going to risk just sort of starting over again, but in the same direction, only using a new energy form as a kind of, you know, capitalizing currency, you know? Yeah, well, there's definitely two competing forces here, and that's why I just think it's so important to get the issues out there and for people to realize there is another alternative. We think we have to bail out these banks because we think we have to have the banks to have a credit system, but we don't. Yeah, I agree that the battle is raging, and there's a definite threat out there. And you hear all this about FEMA camps, and instead of building FEMA camps, we should be building low-cost housing for homeless, I think. Ellen Hodgson Brown is author of numerous books, her latest one, Web of Debt, copywritten in 2007. So her book was a bit ahead of its time in predicting conditions of the current global collapse you can find her ongoing analysis online at the website webofdebt.com. One of her recent articles there, for example, is Turning the Tables on Wall Street. North Dakota shows cash-starved states how they can create their own credit. Ellen Brown, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. For Talk Nation Radio, I'm Dory Smith. This program is produced at the studios of WHUS at the University of Connecticut in Stores, Connecticut. WHUS.org to listen live Wednesdays at 5 p.m. TalkNationRadio.org for transcripts, audio, and discussions.